Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Laura Reese, your podcast host for today. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Peter Kim, who is a professor of management and organization at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Dr. Kim's research focuses on the dynamics of social misperception and its implications for negotiations, work groups, and dispute resolution. His research has been published in numerous scholarly journals, received 10 national and international awards, and been featured by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio. He serves as a senior editor for Organization Science Journal, as an associate editor for the Journal of Trust Research, and on the editorial boards of the Academy Management Review and Negotiation and Conflict Management Research. He is a past associate editor for the Academy of Management Review and past chair of the Academy of Management's Conflict Management Division. He has also just completed his first mass market book that will be published by Macmillan on August 15th, 2023, called How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. It is already available for pre-order from most bookstores, and I know I'll be buying a copy. Today's episode focuses on the topic of ethical accounting, and in particular, hypocrisy in individuals' ethical accounting. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kim. Thank you. So let's jump right in and get started on some questions that I know I'm curious about, and our listeners will be too. So you published a paper developing a new theory of ethical accounting with Scott Wiltermuth and David Newman in 2021. Why should we study this thing called ethical accounting? What what makes it interesting? Maybe another way to ask this question is, what do you mean by ethical accounting and in particular hypocrisy? Good question. Well, the motivation for this work stems from two basic observations. First, all of us want to be considered decent people, but at the same time, few of us really strive to be saints. Instead, uh, most of us tend to treat our moral standing more like a bank account, uh, where our good acts add to the account as credits, uh, and our bad acts subtract from the account as debits. And so this ultimately raises the question of how people can manage those behaviors in a way that would allow them to at least stay on the positive side of the ledger. We use the term ethical accounting to refer to how people might engage in that process. And hypocrisy occurs when there are discrepancies in how we perform this ethical accounting for ourselves versus others, typically by judging those same acts more harshly when they are committed by other people than by ourselves. That's really interesting. So this makes me think of a question. In the paper, you distinguish between motivation-based reasons that we engage in hypocrisy and information-based reasons. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? What what are you trying to explain with the theory and, and what questions can this help us answer? This distinction is important because it helps clarify how our work differs from how we've typically assumed hypocrisy happens. The literature has been overwhelmingly focused on providing motivational explanations for hypocrisy. For example, some of this work points to how we can engage in motivated reasoning to see our own ethically questionable behavior in a more positive light than similar behavior that might be committed by others, or to condemn the behavior of others for behaviors we have also committed so we can appear moral without incurring the actual costs of being moral. But the problem with this kind of motivation-based explanation is that it doesn't seem entirely adequate. 
And the reason why is because people also don't like to see themselves as hypocrites. They're ultimately motivated to avoid viewing themselves in that way. There's actually empirical evidence to support that. One study, for example, suggests that when people are aware that a behavior may be hypocritical, they generally try to avoid it. And if they don't want to act hypocritically, then the only other apparent options would either be to rationalize the behavior as being acceptable for everyone, for example, with the claim that everyone's doing it. The cost there is to make oneself vulnerable to others engaging in those same kinds of actions. And the other option is to condemn the behavior for everyone, including themselves, right? But that's not such a great situation either. So each of those options entails a cost that makes them less than ideal. So even though self-serving motivations might help explain how we make moral judgments as individuals, they ultimately fall short of explaining how people would make those moral judgments at the interpersonal level when we face the prospect of other people doing the exact same thing. That's why we move beyond these prior motivational explanations to consider a more cognitive reason why these discrepancies might arise. Namely, uh, there may be fundamental differences in people's access to information about the self and others that might also play a role. What made this alternative attractive is, is that if hypocrisy can be explained by differences in people's access to information about the self and others, this may create discrepancies in how they view their own and others' behavior in ways they don't necessarily realize. It can occur even when people make every effort to be fair and consistent in how they make these judgments. And this may ultimately allow people to become moral hypocrites without even being aware of it, and thus gain the benefits of hypocrisy by alleviating the threats posed by one's own immoral behavior without its typical costs that might arise from the knowledge that one has indeed been a hypocrite. So this doesn't mean that prior motivation-based explanations are irrelevant. The theory actually recognizes that both influences can co-occur and work in conjunction to drive hypocrisy, but the theory focuses on how matters of information access can play a role in this process because that informational side of the coin has been almost entirely neglected up to this point by this literature. I'd like to explore that informational access um, angle a little bit more. So the theory incorporates four distinct evaluations that we make in our ethical accounting that can lead us to these cognitive distortions in the answers that we come up with once each evaluation reaches a certain threshold. And you also talk in the paper about how we can often evaluate ourselves from a more consequentialist ethical lens, but evaluate others more deontologically. Could you talk about both of these kinds of things? What are those four evaluations and, and how do they relate to one another? Sure. So the four evaluations concern, one, whether the act is unethical, two, whether the actor is responsible for that unethical behavior, three, whether that unethical act is sufficient to outweigh the actor's past history of ethical behavior and thus make the actor morally bankrupt, and four, whether an actor's effort to condemn similar unethical behavior by others means that the actor is trying to rectify that shortcoming or is instead making things even worse by engaging in a blatant form of hypocrisy. So these four evaluations are ultimately sequential and interrelated in the sense that each later stage of evaluation doesn't become relevant until an action meets the threshold of the evaluation preceding it. So for example, if an act is not considered unethical, there's no need to determine whether the actor is responsible for committing it. Likewise, if the act is not considered responsible for committing an unethical act, there's no need to determine whether the act should outweigh that person's history of ethical behavior. 
the sequence of evaluations is also just as applicable when making judgments of the self or others. So we can use the exact same sequence uh, in each case and thus maintain the belief that we are being fair, consistent, and impartial in how we are making these moral judgments. But the wrinkle is that even though we may use the same system to evaluate the self and others, the theory of ethical accounting suggests that there may be fundamental differences in people's access to information about the self versus others that can distort these evaluations in ways that make it easier to believe the threshold has been met to proceed to the next stage of evaluation when evaluating others than for the self. This means that each evaluation can become not only a significant line of defense for the self by allowing people to believe in their own moral adequacy, but also the basis for making it easy to condemn others who engage in similar behavior as irredeemably immoral. To illustrate this point, let's consider how this can happen with the first stage of evaluation, which concerns whether an act is ethical or unethical. This gets to the matter you raised of whether we evaluate these acts from a consequentialist or a deontological ethical lens. Uh, just as a quick review for those who are less familiar with these ideas, the consequentialist and deontological perspectives represent the two major philosophical views about how we should evaluate the morality of an act. Consequentialist perspectives like utilitarianism argue that the morality of an act should be based on the outcomes it achieves. In contrast, the deontological perspective suggests that the morality of an act should be judged based on whether it is a practice that we would want others to follow as more of a universal rule, irrespective of the outcome it would achieve. So one common way to compare these two schools of thought, for example, is to consider whether we would be willing to kill one person to save five other people or not. I won't get into those lengthy philosophical arguments because that would take quite a bit of time. But the point is simply that regardless of which perspective people might explicitly endorse, there are reasons why we would expect differences in people's access to information about the self versus others to lead them to act as if they endorse more of a consequentialist perspective when evaluating themselves, but more of a deontological perspective when evaluating others. This includes the fact that we're simply more aware of the situational factors affecting those actions including their potential benefits for our own actions than the actions of others. And the ultimate result of this is uh, this informational difference is that we're likely to believe that an ethically questionable act is morally acceptable when we are committing the act because we can consider a broader array of consequences it can create. For example, we might find it reasonable to lie if doing so would save a life. But we can't do that as well when we are evaluating others because we're, we aren't as aware of the beneficial consequences they had considered. So we're more, more likely to focus on the act by itself. So in the case of the lie, where observers may not be as aware of the life the lie was intended to save, observers would thus gauge the act of a lie on its own terms as being wrong. So this is how we're likely to stop the sequence of evaluations at the very first stage with, with a self by not considering the act unethical, but consider the same act unethical for others and therefore move on to the next stage of evaluation where we judge whether the act is responsible for the unethical behavior. And other cognitive distortions uh, that we lay out in the theory based on people's differential access to information about the self versus others wind up affecting each of the other stages of the evaluation as well.
I'm really glad you mentioned cognitive distortions because as I read the paper, and I thought some of our listeners might too, many listeners might have heard about ideas that could seem somewhat similar to some of the ideas that you're talking about, such as a really common effect called the fundamental attribution error, or there's also a lot of research that's shown the importance of perspective taking. Could you help us understand how this theory of ethical accounting differs from existing work like this? Sure. Those lines of research are each relevant in the sense that they also concern how people have less insight into others than themselves. So I would put all these lines of research within the broad literature that's concerned with actor-observer differences. This theory also draws on what we know about the fundamental attribution error, for example, to build specific parts of the argument. But the fundamental attribution error is ultimately just one of a much broader array of mechanisms that were integrated to develop this theory. For example, the fundamental attribution error would help explain why in the determination of unethicality at stage one, actors would have less insight into the situational factors that might affect the behavior of others than themselves. But there are other mechanisms that can also play a role in this process and in different ways to shape how that evaluation occurs. So the fundamental attribution error is only one of many building blocks this theory integrates to build its arguments. Likewise, perspective taking is often a useful exercise to help counter some of the problems with certain kinds of information being less salient to actors than observers, where, for example, it might be helpful in negotiations to consider what the counterpart's bottom line might be to help offset the anchoring effects of that counterpart's opening offer but it may be less helpful in cases where the problem is less about information salience than information access. For example, one of the classic examples of the fundamental attribution error is watching a basketball player miss a shot because a light was in his eye and thus attributing the miss to the player rather than the distraction. That's an information access problem that is unlikely to be resolved by attempts at perspective taking. Trying to imagine that player's perspective probably won't help if we are simply unaware of the light being a factor. So I'm not sure how much perspective taking would help address the kinds of issues theory raises. Uh, Armchair perspective taking probably won't make much of a difference in resolving uh, these problems if it doesn't somehow address the informational access problem. But it might be useful to the extent that perspective taking prompts a real search for pertinent information that might be missing. It's really interesting that you brought up negotiations because that's where my mind went to. And your theory of ethical accounting isn't focused explicitly on negotiations, but do you think it would apply to negotiation context? So one thing that has guided both this theory and so much of the other research I've conducted is the notion that negotiations ultimately involve more than the typical kinds of issues we might focus on at the bargaining table, price, quality, and delivery date. Negotiations can also concern our identities, what people think about themselves and every other person that might be involved in the interaction, and how differences in these views are ultimately reconciled. This identity negotiation is a key part of virtually all social interactions, and it can also play a vital role in more traditional negotiations, because our views about those around us can dramatically affect how we operate in those settings. It can affect whether we are comfortable believing what the counterpart tells us, how competitive we might be, our likelihood of walking away, and a host of other attitudes and behaviors. So we really need to think about and understand how that identity negotiation occurs because it can make an enormous difference in determining how 
traditional negotiations and other sorts of social interactions unfold. And this theory of ethical counting is just one attempt to provide insight into that process. So you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious if you have some advice for your students, for them to be able to leverage ethical accounting, and in particular, this really fascinating recognition of our own shortfalls in terms of access to and and processing of relevant information that could help us in negotiations and also even more broadly. Sure. One of the main practical lessons from this theory is that we shouldn't necessarily assume that hypocrisy is deliberate. It may not necessarily be a blatant self-serving act. Uh, It may stem from real differences in their access to information as well. This suggests that rather than immediately impugn people as hypocrites, there may be value in responding to those instances of parent hypocrisy by exploring how those informational differences might have occurred. I have a lengthy example that I can offer to help illustrate this point, one that hits close to home. So as a faculty member at USC, one of the things that we've experienced and the whole nation has witnessed is the litany of scandals our university has encountered. So one, the Varsity Blues scandal where applicants were admitted through side doors, having their parents donate lots of money to sensibly charitable causes, but actually went to people's pocketbooks. That's one example. We have this example of George Tyndall, who was a gynecologist who sexually abused students for, I think, three decades. We have bribery incidents, and the list goes on and on and on. So it led to a number of faculty creating this group called the Concerned Faculty of USC. And there was an incident not too long ago where the chair of that group wrote an op-ed that blasted the current administration because they were not doing enough to address this problem. And in fact, one of the clear signs of how little they're doing and how little they've sort of recognized how much they need to change is the decision to hire McKinsey and company to help them through this process. And and the op-ed was notable in the sense that the op-ed identified, just very quickly mentioned, a host of scandals that McKinsey has also been involved in. They were involved in promoting the, the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. They, they had promoted the off-balance sheet practices that, that led to Enron's downfall. They had been involved with the government and trying to find ways to save money in the immigrant detention crisis at the Mexican border in part by having the government, uh, recommending that the government spend less money on food and healthcare. So there's a litany of things that, that uh, McKinsey was responsible for. And so the op-ed uh, basically said, how, you know, essentially was making the argument, how can you rely on a group that's so ethically compromised to spearhead this effort? By the same token, there are faculty that, that mentioned, you can't just say that this was just part of McKinsey and other branches of McKinsey are okay. When one part of the, the apple is rotten, the entire thing is rotten. I presume that that was a, a well-intentioned sentiment. But the problem there is that if you make that argument about McKinsey, how can you not make that argument about USC as well? The parts of the apple were rotten, not at just one part of the university, but at multiple parts of the university. So why should we not say that every part of the university should be condemned just like the faculty who want to condemn McKinsey? So this is a case of hypocrisy. If you can look at it in terms of what's actually happening through these statements, but there's 
Another way to think about this, and this is indicated by looking a little bit deeper into the op-ed, where the chairperson of this group talked about how one of the silver linings of this entire series of scandals is her getting to know people at USC who are just as concerned about these problems as she is and seeing the ethical people that are at the university. That is a very legitimate observation to make, but we should recognize that she does not have the ability to make that same observation about McKinsey, where she does not have access to the inner workings and discussions there. She's not aware of people who might be making the same complaints about some of these practices within that organization. So when you think about it as an information access problem, you suddenly have a different perspective on what's going on here. So you don't necessarily react by suddenly saying that this person who wrote the op-ed is being a hypocrite. You can see that this is a legitimate cognitive distortion that's occurring because she doesn't have the same kind of access to information about McKinsey as USC. And a really understandable distortion and actually puts a whole new spin on that. That's so thought-provoking and really, I think, highlights how relevant this theory is for so many aspects of life. So I think that makes me ask the question and thinking more generally about research on the idea, are there, are there things that we still need to know about ethical accounting in general and specifically hypocrisy? And why is it important that we know those things? My sense is that we're only at the very start of understanding this ethical accounting process. There is an endless series of questions that still need to be answered. For example, none of the theory's predictions have yet been tested. (laughs) So we need to gauge the extent to which the theory is even valid. Likewise, although the theory proposes four distinct stages of evaluation, there may be other stages of evaluation that this theory has overlooked. So maybe there are five or six. And maybe some of the stages of this theory operate a bit differently than what the paper suggests. So those are other possibilities that have yet to be considered. And there may be a range of additional underlying mechanisms that this theory hasn't considered that might affect how these evaluations play out as well. This theory also moves beyond normative philosophical perspectives of moral judgment to consider this process as more of a calibration problem based on the information we have at our disposal. And that in turn raises an enormous set of questions about how that calibration process might unfold for different kinds of people in different kinds of situations and different cultures and so on. These are just a few examples of how much there still needs to be done uh, before we have a complete picture. Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation. Please be sure to listen to part two to learn even more. You don't want to miss it. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Tsai, Michael Gross, Jennifer Parlamis, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Tsai, thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.